That is a, a fitting confession to lead us into what we're going to do now, which is turn your Bibles to Acts, Exodus chapter 9, and especially the Lord Most High. So in Exodus chapter 9, we'll look together at verses 13 through 35, the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 9, and you can follow along as I begin reading in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock, all that you have in the field, into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. The Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord, and the thunder will cease. There will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. 
flax and the barley were struck down. The barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emer were not struck down. For they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased. And the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then forgive me for starting too late. Please look back up at the previous plague. I started in 13 and should have sent us to verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take a handful of soot from the kiln, Let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the reading of God's word. Would he bless it this morning? You can be seated. And children, you can be dismissed to children's church. The title I've given for the sermon this morning is God Rules His creation. And that is probably an easy agreement in the room. Probably we hear that God rules over his creation. And it's not very controversial, but it's very important for us to confess. Why is it so important for us to acknowledge that God rules over his creation? Because we are talking about a narrative, the Exodus that tells us, it's a long story that tells us God keeps his promises. God does what God says he will do. And if that God who made those promises is not in charge of natural occurrences, then can he certainly keep those promises? That would be a question. If God's not in control over all things created, can he do what he has promised to do. And so the Exodus and these plagues remind us that God does rule over all creation. And in so doing, he is always able to keep his promises. He creates, I'm going to just divide this study this morning into two parts. He creates and he controls all of the material world. He creates and he controls We see in the first point, God, in verses 8 through 12, creating some sort of plague, a virus, out of the ashes in the bottom of a stove. God creates. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron, number one, take a handful of soot and throw it in the air before Pharaoh and all the magicians, and it will become on them sores. And boils. God transforms out of one thing something else. Now, we've seen this already. 
In the first sign, not plague, but sign, God told Moses and Aaron to throw down a staff and it became a serpent. God told Moses to put his otherwise healthy hand inside his cloak and take it out and it became leprous or unclean. And then the first plague, God makes blood out of water. The transformation in this case involves filling his cupped hands with ashes, with with soot from the bottom of a stove and throwing it in the air. And from that, the Lord delivers another blow in Egypt. Another punch comes from God. The plague is devastating. What started as a small amount of soot that could be held in Moses' hands, his cupped hands, changes into a storm of plague, of virus, of boils. A putrefying sore or skin ulcer. There's an interesting mention in verse 11. Maybe you saw it and would scratch your head. There's been these magicians, right? They're kind of these these supporting cast members. And they have sometimes duplicated. In order to reassure Pharaoh, hey, these things aren't supernatural. We've got this. We're still in control. And then sometimes they have said, we can't. This is the hand of God. This is the last reference to the magicians in all of the Pentateuch. Exodus and all of these five books that Moses writes. The last reference. And why is this one important? Well, it helps the reader understand something Pharaoh has been using to soothe himself in the middle of this judgment is gone. Because these magicians couldn't stand in the presence of this plague. If the physicians couldn't heal themselves, then the power of God was in fact greater than all of the power of Pharaoh. Verse 12 closes out this short plague. With an amazing statement of clarity. You know, the the Bible had told us already in Exodus chapter 3 verse 19. God had told Moses, Pharaoh's not going to do what you ask him. In chapter 4 verse 21, God had said, I am going to harden his heart. In chapter 7, verse 3 and 5, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart just as God had said he would do. And then here in verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That's the first time it's stated that way in the plagues. In the first five plagues, there's a variation of two expressions. One is the Lord, or Pharaoh hardened his heart. The other is the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Those are both accurate The first five plagues. This sixth plague, there seems to be a clearer revelation of what's happening. Remember last week I gave you that word picture of the plagues being those punches? Josh helped us see that a few weeks ago. And you have this boxing match. And there are punches landing. But the recipient of all of those punches has his back against the rope. And so he can't go down He is sustained in his combat, even though the battle is really over. 
And at this point, we read this revelation. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Let me, let me present something that um, I think is sometimes a struggle for me. That is, I can read this account of God's reign over his creation and that that creation include, includes the heart of this evil king. And I can rejoice that God rules over Pharaoh. I can comfort myself with political elections like we experienced this past week. Which, by the way, I thought I had a really good relationship with Ron Johnson. We were communicating almost every day. And I haven't heard a word from him since Tuesday. I'm really hurt by that. I've got this whole string of text messages that just stopped. (laughs) It's true. It's true. We're counting our blessings right now. I can comfort myself with the outcomes of political elections by saying God rules over those things. But let me just say, it takes a work of the Spirit to also get me to the same glad confession, God rules over my heart. Because, maybe like you, I see myself as otherwise neutral, but very capable. I see myself sort of as the moral center of the road. I know that I could go either way, and I'm really thankful that the Lord takes me by the hand and directs me a certain way, but I don't need him to do a work over my heart because I'm not like Pharaoh, and I'm not like political campaign and election. And so it takes a work of the Spirit for me to say, Lord, you rule not only over Pharaoh, not only over political events. Your rule is over my heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen to Moses just as the Lord had said he would do. We are told in Scripture, why, why would this little statement matter to the church? We heard from Jeff this morning talk about the work of evangelism on campuses. And yet we read in Scripture that the fool says in his heart, there's no God. There is this global defiance of the gospel. And and we hear from a missionary who is laboring to reach defiant people with the gospel. Is there hope? Well, there definitely is. Because we read texts like this, God rules over hearts. 
The Lord has chosen to confound the wise things in this world with foolish things. The Lord has promised that he is gathering a myriad of people from the nations to assemble at his throne and sing his glory for eternity. And so the Lord rules over hard hearts and is keeping his promises. He creates. Secondly, he controls. Of course, this one's going to take us a little bit more time and I'm going to have to move efficiently here. This seventh plague, the plague of hail, the question is, are the plagues progressing in in their trouble? Are they getting harder as we go? Well, is hail worse than boils? Or previously the death of livestock? It's a legitimate question. However, keep in mind that the Bible does not tell us that the sixth plague led to any fatalities. This, in fact, is the first plague that promises that there will be loss of life in Egypt. The plague is announced. In verse 13, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they may serve, which by the way, some of your translations, and I appreciate that they say worship me. God does not need laborers. But according to John 4, he does seek worshipers. New to the announcement, in verses 14 through 16, is this special message. For this time, in verse 14, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Pharaoh, you will feel this plague. God certainly in this one does get Pharaoh's undivided attention. This plague is intensified. Stuart notes this about this plague. The explanation given in these verses is clear and simple. Pharaoh must learn that Yahweh alone is supreme. The implication being that the gods in whom Pharaoh had trusted and whom he himself represents were essentially nothing. Pharaoh is needing to learn that not only does God rule over Pharaoh, but God rules over everything Pharaoh thought ruled. Earlier plagues had served up to this point as examples of God's restraint. The first six plagues are examples of God being patient. What I mean by that is verse 15. God says this through Moses to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. You would have been cut off from the earth. 
You understand, we have the account of six plagues. It could have been one plague that eliminated Egypt. So that there was not an Egyptian on the planet. And we might say, well, yeah, that makes sense. That should have happened. The Egyptians could have been eliminated day one. But the first six plagues are are examples of God's restraint for a, a reason. Pharaoh himself had come to power by God's sovereign act. And Pharaoh is acting now in defiance of God as God's sovereign act. Look again at verse 14, 15, and 16. And maybe you notice that there is a repetition. In each verse, the Bible says, this revelation of me is to be known in all of the earth. In all of the earth. In all of the earth. This literally means globally, not all around here people should know. This means globally God is doing this work of landing punch after punch with his opponent against the ropes, unable to relent. And he's doing it all so that the earth will know. There's no one like me in the earth and my name must be proclaimed in all the earth. Through this, Pharaoh's behavior mirrors what we know is true in Romans 1. In Romans 1, verse 18 through 32, we read there that natural man was offended by and uncomfortable with the supernatural power that God is. Did not like, it wasn't convenient For natural man to think about God, so traded the truth of God in for a lie and worshipped the thing God made instead of God who made the thing. One of the ways God punishes sinners, as we see in Romans 1, is to allow their sin to continue, allow it to take its natural and destructive course. This reminds us of the biblical truth that people cannot rescue themselves from their sinning. Sin is an incarcerating bondage itself. If God withholds his help, sinners become fixed in their pattern And the harmful effects of their sinning only multiply. Verse 18. God promises that the devastation is going to be greater than what Egypt has experienced from its founding until now. That's significant. This is a punch within a punch at Egypt's existence. One of the things Egyptians took great pride in is they thought we were the first people on the planet, so therefore we're superior to all the other newcomers. And when God brings up the point that he himself has recorded everything since the beginning, this is an insult to Egyptian national pride. In verse 19, with the order recorded 
God tests the Egyptians. In effect, there are three categories of people to be tested. Those who completely ignored... Can, can you imagine? We're talking about a string of plagues that are unfolding over the period of mere months. We know from what's referenced about the harvest that this plague is only going to be at most two months away from the exodus itself. So number seven is only at most two months away. We are talking about witnessing and living through devastation and there are still people who hear the warning, get inside or you could die. And we see that there are people who completely ignore the warning. And how awesome is our God who provides the very people he is pouring judgment out on a warning to get inside because the judgment's going to be really difficult. How great is our God? There are people who totally ignore the warning. There are also people like Pharaoh, for example, who had become convinced God was going to do what he said, but not in a repentant way. And then, of course, there's Israel who believed in God's power and worshipped him accordingly. So God warns them, bring your livestock and everything you have in from the field and place it in shelter. This includes man and animals. Later he says, the hail will fall on every man and animal that is not brought inside. Which, by the way, this was, I don't know if you remember, this was the reference a week ago to how many animals in Egypt died. Did they all, did every single? Well, here you have just a few weeks later the warning, get the animals inside. So we understand that the Hebrew translation is Animals were dead all over the place. And here, there are some animals remaining, and God says, if they're not inside, they're going to die. Some people heed this advice. Look at verse 20 and 21. The officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord, they thought, God is going to do this thing he promises to do, so we better get the message out, bring in our animals, Bring in our field laborers and get protection. And then there are plenty who say a hailstorm. Who's familiar with hail? How is, how is this an escalation of the plagues? Hail? I ate flies for like two weeks. This is just hail. And then let's look at verse 22 through 26. With Moses' hand holding the staff in the air again, it signals the start of the next plague. The plague is devastating to humans, animals, crops, all over Egypt. Of course, verse 26, except in Goshen. Part of the massive nationwide thunderstorm accompanied by fire from heaven, which seems to me pretty clearly to be what is understood as lightning, whether it's fire that it produces fire at its strike or whether it's fire because it is a flash of fire in the sky. 
it accompanies wind and rain, producing unimaginable damage. A killer storm with huge hailstones. One of the most devastating hail storms in history is recorded in 1888 in northeast India. Over 200 people died and hundreds more were injured. This storm begins, and from the narrative, it seems that we understand it goes on without relief. And as there is death happening all over Egypt, except Goshen, Pharaoh knows he has to ask for help. And so, in verse 27, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. This seems to be the closest Pharaoh gets to expressing grief. He says, I know that I'm in the wrong and God is in the right. Nothing in what Pharaoh said should lead us to understand that he had genuine sorrow unto repentance. I want to be really clear. Pharaoh admits he's done something wrong. That is not confession unto repentance. Friends, I want to be clear about the gospel itself. The gospel is not a sinner's admission that he has made some mistakes, that he has committed some sins. The gospel's confession is, I am a sinner. I have fallen short of the glory of God. I think it could be uh, a semantical nuance, like like a, a word nuance to some of us, But I want you to understand that as you evangelize, as you share the hope of Christ with other people, it might be for some of them a significant hurdle where they say, I know that I have sinned, and so if I admit that to God, then I'm forgiven of those things I did wrong. And and that might be for some people a significant means of preserving their own self-righteousness. And therefore, a barrier or hindrance to the gospel itself. But instead to say, I am a sinner. That my sin is an indication I'm in trouble. That my sin is evidence that I'm a sinner. I remember I was driving with a man. I I think I've told this story here before. and I, I, I remember the gentleman. I remember where we were driving in his truck. I'd been sharing Christ with him for quite a while. He was raised religious, so he had a lot of religious vocabulary. And I remember one day in our conversation, the Lord revealed a significant point of a topic that needed to be discussed as we were driving. He assured me, he says, oh, I'm very aware that I have done sin. He says, in fact, every night I pray and ask God to forgive me of all the things I know I did wrong that day. Now, for just a moment, that might sound to us like a really sensitive conscience that the Spirit of God is leading. But 
in that moment, it did not seem at all that way to me. It seemed like he was preserving his truest identity as an otherwise righteous person who had, unfortunately, tripped up sometimes. And that is a significant distinction of true biblical confession that leads to repentance. Godly grief, the Bible calls it. There's nothing about what Pharaoh says here that leads us to think he wants to get out of anything other than the plague. What Pharaoh wanted was the hail storm to stop, not anything more. He wasn't asking Moses for fellowship with God. He's not asking Moses for access to worship God. He's asking for God's existence to be forgotten. Moses agrees to stop the plague. In verse 29 through 30, we can note that Moses and Aaron come to the palace at Pharaoh's call. Moses and Aaron, probably in Goshen, seeing off in a distance a devastating storm that goes on without relief. And then they get message. Uh, Moses and Aaron, can you leave the borders of Goshen and walk to the palace? Uh, no, thank you. Are you seeing it yet? Moses and Aaron, can you walk down the paths and the streets where the animals and the people are being struck by lightning and hailstorm and dying and walk to the palace? I, I need to ask you for something. And Moses and Aaron say, well, are you kidding me? It's dangerous. That's not what they say. Now listen, this is, this is for you to picture. Moses and Aaron walk to the palace. And that's where Pharaoh says, I need you to make this stop. And then Moses says, okay, I'm going to walk outside of the city and I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to pray that God would do that. Moses and Aaron display that they have total confidence that this judgment is not for them. The Bible later tells us that in 1 Thessalonians. It tells us there, there is judgment that's coming on the earth. The only comparable will be these plagues. And there is judgment that is going to be poured out on the earth. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, but rest assured, that wrath is not for God's people. And Moses is living this out millennia before Paul wrote Thessalonians. He walks into the palace, hears the message, says, okay, I'll go out to the boundary, the border of the city itself, and I'll lift my hands and I'll pray. What does he pray? That Pharaoh would know Yahweh owns the world. Look at verse 30, significant. One of the theological themes of all of the Bible is stated for the first time in Exodus 9, verse 19. Now therefore send, get your livestock, 
all that you have in the field into safety for every man and beast in the field. I'm uh, sorry, that must be 29. It's 30. It's 30. Look at verse 30, please. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. This is a theological theme that runs throughout Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the theme demanding that God's people stand always in awe of him. Appreciating his supremacy and greatness. And that they not ever tread lightly on any of the aspects of his covenant relationship. And then, in the next two verses, there is this side note about the harvest. Verse 31 and 32. Look at the devastation of the crops. Because even for those people who did fear God, at least his wrath, and bring their animals and their laborers inside, the crops couldn't be brought inside. And they're devastated. I'm not sure how many of you in here have ever been in a situation where you had to make the decision of whether or not you would buy crop insurance. Maybe you're familiar with the concept of crop insurance. There are insurance salesmen that will come to a farmer and say, do you want to insure your harvest against uh, an act of God? A storm, a tornado, hail, flooding. And you have to make that decision. In fact, my father-in-law was a farmer up north of Eau Claire his entire life and only bought crop insurance one time in all of his life and came to need it. i not giving him any credit of being a you know, reader of the future, but the time he bought it, he needed it. They don't have it. And so to a people who live off the land, literally, 31 and 32 are significant expression that this hailstorm had produced great loss for the people. And then the plague subsides. In verse 33 through 35, Moses did exactly what he said he would do. God faithfully lifts the storm as Moses prayed. Pharaoh and his officials go back to what by now is almost predictable pattern. Look at verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased. Rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. We are reassured that God rules over his creation. And Pharaoh's defiance is not excluded from that rule. Pharaoh hardens himself, sins, disobeys just as the Lord had told Moses he would do. God rules over creation. 
in the context of God keeping his promises, that is vitally important. If God does not rule over anything, then it calls into question the certainty of his promises. If there is anything that is rogue from God's reign, it introduces measurable doubt that God reigns. This passage, these two parables, are good for us. They remind us that we can persevere because our God does reign. This coming Saturday, I am going to speak at Katie's memorial service. And when I do, I'll have the privilege, as we met with the family last week and talked about passages of Scripture, I'll have the privilege to read from 1 Corinthians 15. If you'd turn there, please. 's a passage that I often share at a funeral or a graveside service and you of course understand why the significant chapter in the New Testament that repeatedly and potently assures us of the resurrection of God's people this is good to hear at a moment of loss but there's a closing statement that fits our confidence in God's promises right now. And that is verse, let's start in 56. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is victory, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable. Be bounding forward in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What if God's promise of resurrection and eternal life could be threatened? What if keeping us for that covenant promise could be undone? What if something could pluck us out of his hand? Then we would seriously question the wisdom of those verses. We would say, my labor might be in vain. I'm not sure God can keep his promise. But we've been reminded this morning by the Spirit of God who lays out the details of just these two plagues. And the Spirit of God says, Child, God rules over everything. Nothing will undo what he's promised to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we hear this revelation, as we lift our eyes up to the Lord Most High, I pray that we would have a joy-filled perseverance knowing that our labor is not in vain.
There is nothing that can threaten, undo, unravel your covenant promise and faithfulness to us. There is not falling from the heavens a single rogue hailstone that could interfere with your plan that could affect or edit the number of days you have counted for us. There is not a a virus or an illness that can gain access to your children that you do not rule over. As your spirit ministers this truth again deeply into our soul, Make us to be people who go and do likewise and abound in the delight and the labor and the work of your everlasting kingdom. Thank you for feeding us, Father, for ministering to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you please stand together and we have a chance to sing.